You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Full and Thriving podcast. I am really excited today because today I am speaking to someone who I really admire in the field named Emily Murray of Murray Nutrition. She is a registered dietitian who specializes in eating disorder recovery. She is non-diet and haze aligned, which is always right up my alley. And she has her own lived experience with an eating disorder, which I always find to be helpful when helping others through their recovery journey. And also she's based in Nashville. And I also recently found out she loves watching HGTV, nature walks, and spending time with her husband and dog, Theo. So this is a little summary about Emily. Emily, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. Good. I'm glad. Thank you for being on the show. It's, it's awesome that you're here and I know you have so much to share. And I wanted to first start by asking you about your journey to becoming a dietitian. How did you end up where you are today? Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) many twists and turns as all of us have in our journeys of recovery and life. Um, the condensed version, how did I become a dietitian? So I, in high school, I was diagnosed with IBS, just had a lot of anxiety and stomach symptoms and all of that stuff. And in college, it got pretty bad, um, just symptom wise. And so I, I thought, yeah, maybe I can be a dietitian and like cure my IBS and help other people with this, which, you know, was very well intended. Um, But in that process, I actually, you know, in my own journey, I ended up really getting into a lot of disordered eating, which, you know, definitely developed into an eating disorder. I was really hyper-focused on you know, what do I need to eat to feel good? Do I need to follow a FODMAP diet? Do I need to eliminate gluten or dairy or, you know, all of that sort of thing. And was just really totally oblivious to, I knew my anxiety and stress affected my digestive system, but I truly had no idea the extent of that. So I really kind of went, went down a a rabbit hole that was not super fun. Um, But in my own personal recovery, I started working with a dietitian and a therapist and I thought, oh my gosh, I can be this sort of dietitian. I can be a recovery dietitian and I can help people and this will be so great. So that, that's just a little bit, um, a small snapshot of how 
I, you know, became a dietitian and, you know, specifically an eating disorders dietitian. Wow. Okay. I love hearing everyone's unique journey to this field because it's so kind of niched. So mm-hmm. it's interesting to hear how you got there. So my understanding is you were, you had IBS and then in that process decided to become a dietitian to help people through that experience. And then while studying, you basically got your own eating disorder. And then that was how it all really happened. Yeah. So in high school, I definitely had like some disordered eating, um, Mm -hmm. you know, like occasional like binge eating, not as much restriction, but you know, just kind of emotion driven, you know, or anxious eating or things like that, but nothing, you know, super, super distressing. And then when I had the IBS symptoms, um, and I thought about becoming a dietitian, I actually went and saw a dietitian, not, not eating disorder strained. And she, and I told the dietitian, like, and I don't, I'm proud of myself for even having this awareness, but I kind of told her, like, I think I might have an eating disorder. Do you think I have an eating disorder? And she said, no, 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 no. You don't like restrict enough or bend enough to have an eating disorder. And so that was just really, really bad. Um, And she put me on a gluten-free, dairy-free diet. And so that's where it really, really spiraled into, you know, more restrictive eating and just emotionally, socially, just so, so horrible and sad and (laughs) just not good. And so I ended up stopping. I didn't continue with her and then um, started my recovery journey when I realized, yeah, this is not good and this isn't eating disorder and that lady didn't know what she was talking about. Wow. I'm so sorry that happened. That is really disappointing, especially since I hear that a lot, you know, we trust a lot of medical professionals and they might not be informed on eating disorders and mm-hmm. it just becomes worse because of those interactions. Yeah. So I'm sorry. She really triggered that experience for you, but it sounds like you had the wisdom, which is really cool to look back on. Cause that, as you might know, I have lived experience too. And I always look back at how wise I was as a, like a younger person. And I'm really impressed by that. And so it's nice to hear that you felt the same way about yourself. At what point did you realize you needed to seek help for your own eating disorder? Like you kind of realized, no, actually this is an eating disorder and I need to heal. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, this goes along with kind of some of what we're going to talk about today, but, you know, one of the things that I did do, I knew, you know, I knew my eating was restrictive and it just wasn't super great. And I would Google like symptoms of eating disorders and symptoms of anorexia. And I was like, wow, like I have like all of these symptoms except I'm not underweight. So I absolutely don't have that. You know, I absolutely don't have an eating disorder. And I think that delayed me from seeking help for a while. What really led me to, you know, seek help was I I couldn't concentrate in school. I was having mental morning, mental breakdowns, like sobbing, calling my mom, just not good. And so I was like, okay, you know, (laughs) this is not good. And something has to change. And so really the, the emotional toll is what really, really pushed me to seek help. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know what this is, but this is not good. <laughs> so I'm going to get help regardless of if this is an eating disorder or an anxiety disorder or both. Like I know 
I told my mom, I said, I need a dietitian. I need a therapist. Like this is, I'm something's not right. That is amazing because I, I see so many individuals who focus so much on the underweight aspect when Mm -hmm. in reality, I think, I think I heard somewhere that only 7% of those with restrictive disorders land in the underweight category based on Mm -hmm. BMI, which is out of date anyway, but it's still one of those amazing statistics where it kind of opens your eyes to realizing you do not have to be a certain size to be diagnosed with an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Well, so it's pretty wild to, to hear that, but I'm glad that you had the wisdom to recognize there are other indicators that your health is out of whack as far as like your own mental health was. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that kind of brings up a little bit about what we were going to talk about today, which is a typical anorexia. Mm -hmm. I, before we got on this call today, I asked you about something you're passionate about talking about and you brought up the subject and I was really excited to hear, hear more from you about this. And I guess my first question is when you were seeking treatment and you didn't and you weren't underweight did that impact how professionals interacted with you or impact the treatment they decided to give you was there any like weight stigma involved when you went to get help yeah that's a really good question and i think there absolutely was and that's really important for us to talk about because i am in like a relatively very small body you know just like i have thin privilege i live in a small body and i still experience some of that so you know it's just like how much more might someone in a larger body than mine experience that so luckily in my eating disorder treatment team i didn't which was amazing but I will say, I think I experienced it with that dietitian because I said, I think I have an eating disorder and I wasn't underweight. I think if I would have quote, quote, been underweight, she would have taken that more seriously. My pediatrician, which is so fascinating. You can look at my growth chart because I was still technically like adolescent, like very like young adult within that CDC two to 20 year old growth chart. It just like very, very normal growth and then drops down. But the pediatrician was like, Oh, you lost weight. That's great. Um, you just did diet and exercise. Like that's, that's so normal. Um, so in that sense, and I, but all the while I was telling her like, Hey, something's wrong. I don't know what's happening. I would say with those two. And then with an, a gynecologist too, I think there was some weight stigma too. So mostly with people Um, who weren't trained in the field, there absolutely is weight stigma within the field of eating disorders. But yeah, definitely with individuals that weren't. And the only thing with my treatment team, they I mean, we very much from the beginning was like eating disorder, this is an eating disorder, we didn't focus that much on, you know, the actual diagnosis, I just kind of self claimed like this is anorexia. (laughs) That's just kind of like, (laughs) this is what this is. And they just kind of rolled with that. I don't really know. Technically, I don't even remember what was on my super bill or whatever. But I mean, and they, I mean, they agreed and, you know, fully supported that, even if that wasn't like my, you know, whatever official diagnosis. So that's awesome. So you 
just told them, you're like, I have anorexia. This is what it is. This is what I'm getting treated for. And I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes yeah. you need to be your own advocate and you know, your body better than anyone else. So yeah. that was really, again, another wise thing that you ended up doing uh, to help yourself. So what are some of the dangers that those struggling with atypical anorexia might face? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think one of the biggest things that I see with my clients is the struggle to self-validate, um, in terms of like their own suffering and experience. I was really lucky to have like really supportive family and team. Like, even if I was, even if I had a few thoughts of like, I'm not even sick, you know, they would be like, you know what, Emily? No, we've talked about this before, you know, but a lot, a lot of my clients really have just had really poor experiences with health professionals, with family members, with things like that, with people who just don't understand the nature of eating disorders at all. And especially with my clients in larger bodies, it's so hard because they'll hear their eating disorder team tell them like, Hey, what we're doing is not okay. And then they'll go to their doctor and their doctor will be like, Oh, you lost weight. That's so awesome. And they're like totally restricting, you know? So I think that is so, so hard. I think feeling like it's the less than eating disorder or that like I wasn't sick enough to have anorexia, that sort of thing I think is harmful. And then, you know, practically, um, you know, I'll have clients that meet criteria quote, quote, um, for anorexia and they'll submit a super bill and their insurance will reimburse it. And I have clients with OSFED And so other specified feeding and eating disorder, which is what a typical anorexia falls under, um, their insurance companies will, will request my notes and like call me and say like, Hey, does this person actually need this? And I'm like, why are you calling me? (laughs) You know? So that I think is a really horrible thing too. And I think we see that in treatment facilities and things like that as well. Hmm. That is so upsetting to hear and very unfair to just know that insurance companies are still kind of overlooking somebody because of their size. It's really awful. How do you see that happening in treatment centers? So like, I think just in terms of if a person is at a lower weight, they're more likely to, um, to match or qualify with like a higher level of care, like a residential or a PHP level of care versus if they're not underweight, a lot of times the most that people will get is like an IOP intensive outpatient, unless they're, you know, suicidal or using tons and tons and tons of behaviors or have comorbid substance. It's like really hard to get people in more intensive treatment if they're not underweight. And that is horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Actually that does remind me because I used to work at a mental health agency and they, in general, they're just outpatient treatment mostly, but they found out I specialize in eating disorders. And it was interesting because it was, I'm not a therapist. It was a organization full of 
hundreds of therapists and they would turn to me as the kind of eating disorder specialist. I found out that it took them like size, not even a question. It wasn't even that it was like, they would, they wouldn't really accept people with eating disorders unless they had some sort of comorbid diagnosis to go along with it. Cause it was like, they needed a more legitimate reason to accept their insurance or take them on as a consumer. So that was just wild to me. I see that all the time, just this invalidation of those with eating disorders in general, especially when it comes to seeking treatment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just a total lack of understanding of what an eating disorder is, right? Like eating disorders are mental illnesses, right? Like first and foremost, there's something going on psychologically. Absolutely. There can be, you know, side effects of weight loss or weight gain or weight staying the same, you know, we just don't know, but too often, you know, the first thing that someone wants to know is a person's weight. And that's really like missing the whole rest of the iceberg and the whole bigger picture. Yeah, so true. So true. You mentioned that one of the biggest struggles for those with atypical anorexia is this validation piece. Mm -hmm. Do you help your clients validate themselves or learn how to validate themselves? And would you have any advice for anyone who might fall into that category on how they can start at least learning to validate their own experiences? Yeah, yeah, totally. So um, with a lot of my clients that struggle with that, I will first provide a lot of validation because they might not have ever received that or even know what that looks like. So we will talk about, you know, weight stigma, we'll talk about fat phobia, anti fat bias, we'll talk about my opinions of the DSM, and, you know, all of those things. And I'll really validate like, I totally see your suffering. I'm an eating disorders professional. I know your weight, and I see your behaviors. And this is kind of what I think. And we'll really talk through some of those things. We'll talk about quality of life. And like, let's just throw the DSM out the window. Like, what does your quality of life look like? And, you know, how can we improve that? And do we want to improve that? And what do we want our life to look like? Mm. So we will talk a lot about all of those things. Um, And then I really like using um, self-compassion statements from Kristen Neff. So really focusing on, um, mindfulness versus like over I don't know if it's mindfulness versus over identification or common humanity versus over identification but starting with mindfulness like okay I'm noticing that I'm having all of these thoughts that my suffering is not valid that I'm not even sick enough that you know whatever and naming that um and then validating like wow that's really hard to have all of those thoughts while also you know really really struggling Um, And then practicing self-kindness and asking, you know, asking yourself what you really need in that moment, Um, whether it's a statement of validation or talking to a friend or something else. Um, So really kind of slowing down. And then I'll also encourage my clients to try to tap into that 
healthy self versus, you know, that eating disorder part that totally wants to keep them sick and keep them stuck and keep them wrapped up in the eating disorder. You know, I'll ask like, is there any part of you, no matter how small that, you know, thinks what I'm saying might be true about, you know, the DSM or this diagnosis or your eating disorder. And they'll be like, uh, maybe, you know, so we'll talk <laughs> about that too. I think that's really amazing to hear that people can find someone like you who provides them with that validation right off the bat, like mm -hmm. from a professional who's trained in eating disorder recovery, you have, at least in my opinion, if I were to hear, if I was struggling with atypical anorexia and needed validation from someone like a professional can really help, you know, just getting that getting your healthy self to stand up and say, well, if this professional is telling me that I'm valid and that I'm sick enough, maybe I can trust that. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge step. So I love that you do that. And I think those compassion statements are so helpful as well. And it is a matter of slowing down and just asking yourself, what do you need? You know, what do I need in this moment? Mm -hmm. So I love that. Actually, while you were talking, I was thinking about what I read about you on your website. And you also mentioned the concept of radical honesty, mm. which I think is so cool because that's something I, I don't call it that. I always call it, um, I tell everyone I work with to call your eating disorder out, just constantly call your ED out, call yourself out. Yeah. And that's kind of my form of radical honesty. But how does that come into play when you're working with clients? And it doesn't, necessarily have to be just focused on atypical um anorexia those with atypical anorexia but in general yeah yeah totally so I added that actually to my website recently because I, 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 just, do, I just really value honesty and transparency um yeah so I think one of the biggest ways is like a client will be talking and it's like totally the eating disorder. It's like, blah, 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 blah. I'm like wondering if I should like go back on a diet or whatever, you know, all this stuff. And I'll just be like, just wait and wait and wait. And I'll be like, am I talking to your eating disorder right now? Cause I think that's what's happening. And they're like, oh, how did you know? And I'm like, okay. um, so definitely. Yeah. Just like what you said, just calling out, you know, eating disorder parts that are coming out. Um, and I think too, really, truly, I'll be really, really honest with people about what I think they need in terms of treatment. Like we could do this outpatient for three months and you could, or however many months and you could do that with me, but I think you would probably benefit even more from doing a more intensive treatment, not with me, you know? So really putting like client care first and what will be the most beneficial to them versus just like keeping them in my office because that's not helpful for anyone. Yeah, I completely agree. I think sometimes the outpatient model isn't the right fit and it's important to recognize that if you need more help, there's nothing wrong with seeking a higher level of care instead of keeping yourself stuck. You know, I think um, giving yourself the best opportunities possible as you know, of course, if you can, access those resources. I know so many people do have trouble accessing higher levels of care. Yeah. Yeah. So with atypical anorexia, 
Do you have any comments or thoughts on the challenges those might face when recovering? Because so basically if you're not underweight, so you're living in a, maybe a, a straight sized body or even a larger body and you're recovering and then there is some potential weight gain there. What advice do you have for people who might be recovering into a larger body as opposed to recovering into a straight sized body? Uh, Cause I feel like that is probably, and I cannot speak from this experience, but that seems like a very challenging situation to go through because of all the weight stigma in happening in our culture right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I will, you know, just straight up have these conversations with, you know, clients, and I'll just say, like, my eating disorder recovery as someone in a straight sized body as someone who was not, you know, recovering into a larger body, that process was one of the hardest things that I've ever done. Like that was so, so hard. And because we live in a culture that unfortunately, you know, is so entrenched with weight stigma, and fat phobia and this very narrow thin ideal, the farther that you move away from that, like that's an additional barrier to recovery. And that is so, so hard. And it's not fair. It's not to say that it can't happen. Of course, I have many clients, I know many colleagues and professionals who have recovered into larger bodies, and they're doing well, and it's like totally okay. And they're, you know, fat activists and all of this stuff. But it is another barrier. Like it, it, it just is. And that, and that's a really, really tough thing. And I think there's so much grieving that comes with that for those clients. And it's just, it's really hard because if someone's quote, quote, like visibly underweight and they gain weight, people might be like, Oh my gosh, you look so healthy. This is so great. And if a person in, you know, a straight size body or even a larger body gains weight, you know, people might not say anything, but they also might, and it might not be as celebratory, you know? And so Mm -hmm. I think with my clients too, there's a lot of fears about what other people will say, what other people will think, what that will mean about them if they just quote, quote, let themselves go. And so I think that's just an additional barrier, barrier just as everyone has different unique barriers and things that they have to overcome in their journey. I think that is one specific to people who are kind of in that atypical anorexia category. Yeah, I completely agree. It's another layer of a challenge to face just with the way our society is shaped and the way they, you know, do praise weight loss and then question weight gain or make people feel less worthy if they are to gain weight. So it's so, it's so challenging. I really feel for those who do have to go through that, it's, it's just another layer of, of difficulty. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I guess another comment or thought I have, I didn't write this question down before, but I think a, there's a lot of misconception on what thin privilege is really defined as. Like, I think mm-hmm. some people suffering with eating disorders imagine thin privilege to be the thin ideal, like runway body or like Instagram model. But could you explain really the 
the range of what thin privilege really looks like and how it might not necessarily be celebrity status, runway model sizing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really great thing to talk about. Yeah. So, you know, thin privilege is being able to walk into target and find something that's your size, you know, even if it's not the size that you want it to be, but if you are able to walk into a clothing store freely and find clothes that are in your size, that's thin privilege. Mm. Um, If you're able to, you know, go on an airplane and, you know, fit into an airplane seat, that's a thin privilege. You know, it doesn't mean people that have thin privilege aren't immune to body image struggles. They, you know, it's not like their suffering is not valid. I think people get a little fired up about that. Like just, you know, defensive. (laughs) And that's not, you know, saying like, I have thin privilege. Like I still don't look like a runway model. Like I'm short, I'm curvy, I'm muscular. Like that's my body. And I have thin privilege. Like I'm, I'm not burdened by systemic things within our society because of my size. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we don't talk about as much when it comes to that term. Yeah. I think it people's um, view, if they do not fall into that beauty standard sometimes, but still have thin privilege, there's this there's this gap where they're thinking, well, I must not have thin privilege because I don't fall into this category. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important to just recognize that the privilege comes from being able to do those simple things like walk into a clothing store and get the size clothing that you that you that fits your body, no matter what size it is. The fact that it's in the store and available to you at any moment is the privilege. And same way, like you mentioned, the airplane seats. Yeah. Or even like, you know, like being able to walk into a store and having like a wide variety of clothes to choose from versus like four things in one plus size section. And then, you know, it's kind of all relative. And then some people it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, I have to shop online and other people are like, I can't find anything online. So, you know, there's, there's a, you know, a wide spectrum. um, And it is kind of, relative but you know in general those are some examples yeah absolutely that's so helpful to just articulate that for those listening so thank you for kind of shedding light on that a little bit yeah another question I wanted to ask you is what advice do you have for people who think they are not sick enough in general yeah you know that's a really good question um I think the the first thing that I would say is that healthy people don't want to be sick, period. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't worry about like, am I sick enough or not? Like they're living their life. (laughs) It's not on their radar. (laughs) And so if we're thinking about like, am I sick enough? Am I not sick enough? You probably need help. Um, regardless of what your perception is of your suffering compared to other people's or whatever. The second thing I would encourage a person to think about is try to get other people out of your mind and really think about you and your quality of life, physical, mental, emotional, intellectual, social, spiritual, like 
how is that going? And is food and your relationship with your body and exercise, is that getting in the way of you living your best life at all, even to the slightest? If so, you deserve help. Um, yeah. Yeah. So those are kind of my go-to things that I would, I would think about. And then the other thing too, is that you totally, totally, totally can struggle with eating disorder or disordered eating and have not lost weight, have all your labs normal, have vital signs normal. Um, yeah, you totally don't have to have all of these drastic symptoms to really, really be suffering. Yeah. Those are really good pieces of advice. I see the last one a lot in my clients personally, if they do get normal labs back or maybe they've been able to have children or do some of the things that people with like anorexia have trouble with, you know, they've just lived a quote unquote normal, healthy life. Their body's not necessarily failing them. But they're still mentally obsessed with food, struggling with restriction or other behaviors. It's so hard when you don't have that kind of medical proof backing up your eating disorder. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We want proof. We want to be seen. (laughs) (laughs) We want to be seen in our suffering, you know, and I think that so, so, so makes sense. And you know, we know, again, like what we've already talked about, so much of the suffering is silent and invisible with eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's way more difficult to acknowledge the, the, the suffering that's not visible mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to too many, if it, or not physically manifested in a way. I just, I see that so much with some of my clients and their, their eating disorder self really takes a grip on that experience. Like, well, my labs came back normal. I don't have osteoporosis. I was able to have children. Like they have all these reasons yeah. why they're physically healthy. And they're like, so I must not be sick enough. I see that a lot. That's mm-hmm. difficult. Do you like, how would you challenge someone who was to say that to you say in a session? Yeah, yeah. So it it comes up, you know, pretty often, I think the first, you know, the first couple of times we definitely, you know, validate, validate, talk about, you know, so a lot of psychoeducation about eating disorders and what things look like and blah, blah, blah. And then I'll start to point out, like, we always come back to this narrative of not being sick enough like I wonder what that's really about you know and exploring that with them because there's more yeah there's just more underneath there and then also just thinking of you know just saying like okay so this conversation might not be super helpful right now you know like this is our kind of pattern and we've explored what's underneath and you know, your eating disorder really likes for you to focus on this sick enough thing because it distracts us from the the other work of eating the food or whatever. And so what do we want to work on this week, (laughs) you know, and just kind of redirect back? That's a really smart tactic, I would say is again, like, calling it out and saying, we've explored this already. We've explored 
what's underneath. And the fact that it could be distracting you from mm-hmm. actually doing the work, it kind of helps with the part of you that's resistant to yeah. making change overall. Yeah. 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 Well, this has been a very enlightening conversation, Emily, and I'm, I really appreciate everything that you've brought to the table for the audience that's listening right now. I wanted to ask you in general, like, do you have any advice for people who are on their recovery journey? So what, what, what is like your most favorite piece of advice to give others when they're embarking on their recoveries? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's so hard, isn't it? The recovery. <laughs> open-ended question for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the things that helped me the most and that continue to help my clients are to really try to have a short-term memory when it comes to behaviors and things like that. And to just keep doing the next right thing and to always challenge that, you know, black and white thinking, the eating disorder thoughts, like it's a full, you know, it's a full-time job really and truly, but you have to be an active participant in your recovery. You can't be passive or the eating disorder is going to be driving the boat or the car. (laughs) So really just, I know it's so, so, so hard, but being an active participant, if you mess up, it's okay. It's very, very normal. Do the next right thing, get back on track, you know, stay in community and accountability and yeah, don't quit. I love that. I love the emphasis on being an active participant in recovery. It's so important because I feel like sometimes you can go to your sessions, but if you're not doing the work between sessions and actively taking action on your behaviors and thoughts, as if it were a full-time job, it is, it is easy to kind of get stuck. Yeah. Yeah. How can people find you? And is there anything that they should be looking forward to in the future? Like as far as what you're up to? Yeah. So, um, definitely my Instagram is at Murray nutrition, M U R R A Y. That's where a lot of people find me initially. Um, people can also check out my website, murraynutritionco.com. Um, those are probably the two easiest places to find me. I'm having some people shift around, so might be taking a few more clients this summer, which is exciting. I have a new associate, Caroline Shermer, who also specializes in eating disorders, and she is great. And we have some groups and different things on the horizon, so you can hear more about that Um on Instagram and on our website. Awesome. That's so cool. And Emily, I have to tell you, I think I've told you this via Instagram, like a while before we actually met like over zoom, but mm-hmm. one of my best friends saw one of your posts cause I reshared it on Instagram. And then months later she referred to it and she said she started following you and it's changed her life like the way she interacts with her family. That's what inspired me to reach out to you, I think, was because she she brought you up as if she knew you personally because she follows you very closely. <laughs> yeah, so your, your content, like everyone listening, uh, Emily's content's very powerful and impactful and it will, it can change your life. Even if you don't 
work with her one-on-one, -on -one, just following the content's very great, just because I've seen it in my friend, which mm. was cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it was very, it's, it's very cool. I'm going to let her know you're on the podcast, so hopefully. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Emily, for being on the show. You're a true light and inspiration to everyone in the field, and we are so thankful to have you here today with us. Mm, thank you.